John chapter 6, last time we got down to verse 12, 13, 14, but we saw the miracle of the fishes and loaves where Jesus fed 5,000 men beside women and children, so maybe ten or 15,000 people here uh, with the food that one young man had for himself. And the Lord took the bread, He, he blessed it, gave it to the multitude. The multitude ate till they were filled. And then the Lord said, go and gather up the fragments, and they gather up 12 baskets full. So a a notable miracle, a mighty miracle. And in verse 14, those men which when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. So here was, there was enough power here that such a small amount of food that likely fit in one basket and didn't fill the basket up, that this number of people could eat of that, be full, and then afterwards take up 12 times maybe even more than what they had at the beginning. That was enough evidence that the people that saw that miracle, and I don't know whether the whole multitude recognized what was done or whether those that were close to the Lord, uh, just a few recognized what was done, but those that recognized it said, this is that prophet, this is the one that was to come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. So here, and what we'd like to do is take just a few minutes and look at several different accounts of this next miracle um, and see what all happened. But in verse 15, Jesus perceives that they want to make him a king. So they want to take him and set him up. And you see this, you see this all over the, the Gospels that here they are, they're looking for, and the interpretation of the prophecies is a natural king, just like David was, just like Solomon was, that was going to rule over the nation on the face of the earth, that was going to make Israel, you know, in David's day, Israel was the number one power in the world, that was going to take Israel, the natural nation, back to that place, and that they were going to rule over everybody. So here they see this prophet, they see the multitude fed, they say this is the one, let's make him a king. Let's get him in that place so that the nation can be exalted. Very much, there's there's a lot of that same doctrine today, looking for a natural rule, natural glory, a natural kingdom. But, you know, with a, a little bit of understanding of the New Testament you see that it wasn't natural Israel that God came, Jesus came to set up a natural kingdom. He came to redeem man from sin and the Israel that we see through the Old Testament that He was going to deliver was not the natural seed of Abraham. You can see that in Romans. All of the seed of Abraham was not saved. All of the seed of Isaac was not saved. And so here, you see it was a spiritual Israel. It was the elect of God. Those are the ones that Jesus came to deliver. 
And so they come to take him by force. That means to seize or to catch. They were going to take him and make him to be a king. Now if you were Jesus, why wouldn't you want that? I mean, you think about that. That wasn't what he came to do. That was not what he came to do and he had no interest in being placed in a seat of authority on this earth. He came to be the suffering servant of God that he might pay for the sins of the multitude. In John chapter 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So he's telling Pilate, if this world is what I was interested in, if having a kingdom here to rival against Caesar or against Herod or against Pilate, if that's what I was looking for, then wouldn't my servants take up arms and fight to keep me from being delivered here? But his servants didn't fight. And when Peter tried to fight, remember Peter draws a sword, cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the priest. Jesus rebuked him and told him to put it away. And he went as a lamb before the slaughter. And Pilate here was trying to get him to answer something, to give some sort of defense. And he gives no defense. And he says, Pilate, this is not, the kingdom is not of this world. And so in Luke 19, verse 11, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So Jesus is going from Jericho to Jerusalem here. He's going to enter into the week of his death here. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, there's a crowd with him and they're looking for the kingdom of heaven to come down into Jerusalem here. For him to just go and walk up and take the throne and Israel be exalted once again to power. Over and over again, their expectation is a natural kingdom. And if you look through the gospel, the idea of God's blessing is natural riches. It's all of this world. And that's what religion does. It's all about me. It's all about right now. It's all about this world. But just as an example, remember that as Jesus said of the rich young ruler, how hardly it is for a rich man to enter in. And they said their response was, who then can be saved? Because they thought that this man with his great riches and the good things of this world, that was God's blessing and favor. But we know that's not the truth. It's not of this world. It's not in this world. It's not in this world's riches or gain or good, but it's in Christ. And so he went up again unto a mountain himself alone. In Mark chapter 6, verse 45, uh, this is right the same account here. Straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent the people away. And when he had sent them away, he departed unto a mountain to pray. 
So here's the Lord. He sent now his disciples across the sea. They're down next to the Sea of Galilee, that large freshwater lake. And he tells his disciples, go get into the boat and go to the other side. I'm going to send these multitudes, the multitude that he just fed, I'm going to send them away. And then he goes up to a mountain to pray. Now here's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh. In Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Here He is working great miracles and feeding a multitude to the extent that people said this has to be the one that fulfills the prophecy. And yet here He is going up on a mountain alone to pray. Now what lesson should I take from this man resorting to a mountain alone to pray? If the Lord Jesus who was everything we said that He was, God in flesh, the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. If He saw the need to pray, then should there not be that realization in my heart as well? Prayer must be an important, a weighty matter, as Paul writes, pray without ceasing. And so our hearts should desire to commune with God. Jesus was God. He had a flesh that was weak. He says that towards the end in the Garden of Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You and I have a weak flesh as well. We're apt to fail. Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our nature. You know what we have to do? We have to seek God's help. As our brother already said, seek his counsel, seek his wisdom, seek his grace and his strength and his leadership. Be on our face continually in prayer, recognizing we're not going to make it without him. We will fall into error without his leadership. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he departed into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went into the sea and entered into a ship and went over toward Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus was not come unto them. So we're going to have another miracle here. And what I'd like for you to think about is uh, here they are, the disciples. In Matthew 14, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And now the disciples are out. They've obeyed the Lord. They've got into the ship. They've headed to the other side. The Lord has sent the multitudes away. Here they wanted to make Him a king. And He departed, went up on a mountain alone to pray. And now it's dark. It was now dark and Jesus was not come. So they're out on the sea obeying His command. Night has fallen. And now in verse 18, And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. In Matthew, he says, The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. In Mark 6, He saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. So you know, if you've ever been to a lake, and you can go out early of a morning, and it's still, and it's calm, and it's just as smooth as glass out on the water. 
But now here there's been a storm and not just any natural storm. And I don't know what I've thought of in the past. It doesn't look like a rainstorm, a thunderstorm, but there's these strong winds. And if you research the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's known for that. The Great Lakes are known for that as well. The great winds that can rise up and destroy ships. And here they are, they're trying to get to the other side. They're going where the Lord commanded them to go and the wind is blowing contrary to them, preventing them from getting there. The waves are tossing the ship and here they are, they're in great distress. And when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship and they were afraid. So they're out rowing, they're laboring, they're toiling. Maybe they're worried about how this is going to turn out and they see Jesus walking. Now, the way you read it in John, it sounds like they recognized Him immediately. If you look in Mark, about the fourth watch of the night, so sometime between three in the morning and six in the morning. So they've been out there rowing since the evening before, before it got dark, so six o'clock, three to six the day before. And they've been out there all night. And here comes Jesus uh, early in the morning. He cometh unto them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. In Matthew 14, in the fourth watch of the night. So both agree with the same time. And Matthew says, when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. So they see the Lord walking, but they don't know who it is. They're toiling, they're laboring, it's in a windstorm, the ship is tossed, and they do what you and me would have done. They said, is that a ghost? That must be a ghost walking on the sea. And they were scared, slapped to death. Now wouldn't you be? And so they, they don't know what to think. They're troubled, they're afraid, they cry out for fear. And He saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. You know what He's doing? He's identifying Himself. And He says in Mark, Be of good cheer to have courage. Take courage. It's I, be not afraid. So the Lord has come to them. He's come in a miraculous way, walking on the sea. They've thought that it was a ghost that was walking to them. They cried out for fear. And here the Lord says, it's I, don't be afraid. Take courage, take strength. You know, when, even when we're doing the will of God, if, if you could say it that way, if that's appropriate to say that, we're following the Lord's commandment. It's not always easy to do that. And I realize warring against the flesh, it's never easy to do that. Because we've always got the battle in ourselves but there's even greater than that here. There's outside trouble that looks like it's preventing. You know what the nature of man is? You, you can hear the, the devil. You, you shouldn't be doing this. This can't be God's will because look at what you're up against. Look at what you're facing. And yet these men, at the commandment of the Lord, they continued to row in the middle of the night, they did not give up. They did not turn around and go back. It would have been easier, 
the wind was blowing the opposite way, we'll just go back and wait till it's better in the morning. And there was that snare to entrap them. But see, the Lord wanted them out there. And to get to a place, this is where the Lord always wants us to get. We're not going to do this on our own. That's what the Lord would like everyone to realize, that I'm unable to accomplish this on my own. I'm weak and it takes, I say for me, it takes some time to learn that lesson. That it's not me. That it's not of man. That it's not of my strength. And here they are, no doubt they're about wore out. They're weary, they're give out. And the Lord Jesus says, take courage, it's I. He's come to them. And you know why that they were put in this place? Do you know why they were made to labor like this? So that the Lord could come and i tell you what He's going to do. We've got it in Matthew. We've got it in Mark. We've got it in John. He's going to give them something that they're going to see and remember for the rest of their lives. He's going to prove to these men that He is indeed the Son of God. And so the Lord lets us get in places of distress, in places of labor. Not that we would give up, but that He would come by. And He's not forsaken them. You reckon that went through their mind? What do you reckon He's doing? He's forgot about us. But in Mark, you can see the Lord on the mountain as He prays and He looks out over the water and He sees them out there rowing. He's aware of where they are. He's aware of what they're doing. Well, why didn't He come earlier? Because we've got to get down to the place that we've got no hope left. When man gets to that place, the Lord comes. That way He can get the glory for that. I believe they've realized here, we're not going to row and make it through this. And you're not either. It'd be wise for us to learn that early. It could save a lot of labor in trying to do it ourselves if we could learn that it can't be done by our strength or by our wisdom. But the Lord comes and you talk there in Matthew, be of good cheer, have courage. What strength comes when the Lord comes by? Is that not true? I mean, you can be in a place of great sorrow, in a place of great distress, and by the Holy Ghost, He embraces our soul and pulls us into His bosom, and all of that leaves, doesn't it? You talk about taking courage when the Lord passes by, when His strength fills us. He says in Isaiah, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So the encouragement of God to our souls, I will be with thee. And the Lord had not forgot His disciples. The Lord's never forgot any of His people. His eye is on them. We are, as the prophet said, we're the apple of His eye, His church, His elect. He gave His Son for us. If He gave His Son for us when we were sinners, then why would He not give us all things now that we're His children in His Son? And so we can take courage in the Lord. 
and in His strength, not in our ability. So when He says this in 21, then they willingly received Him into the ship and immediately the ship was at the land whether they went. Matthew says this, when they were come into the ship. Now it's worth noting before we go any farther. Matthew is the one with the account where Peter walks to the Lord on the water. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Jesus says, come. Peter begins to walk on the water to the Lord. How far he got, we don't know. But he got out there, began to sink. The Lord raised him up out of the water. They walked back into the ship. And in Matthew, this is what they say. When they come into the ship, Jesus and Peter, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped Him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. In Mark, He went unto them into the ship, the wind ceased. They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. In Matthew 16, now here Jesus is going to say to them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you know what he's talking about? The Pharisees, they took the Scriptures, but they added leaven to it. There was opinion, there was works, there was religion, there was the the dealings of man that was added into the Scriptures, and it was designed in such a way that you could be righteous of yourself. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're thinking, they're thinking just like you and me, well, he said that because we don't have any bread. We didn't bring anything to eat. And that's what he's talking about. But the Lord says this, Do you not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousands and how many baskets you took up? Don't you remember how that I took the dinner of a little boy and we fed a whole multitude? Don't you reckon that whether we've got bread or not, we're going to be all right? That is not what I'm talking about. But isn't it amazing that their heart is hardened to that miracle? And so the Lord comes into the ship. John says immediately it's on the other side. The other two says when when He enters into the ship... The wind ceased. And listen to the words. Sore amazed, beyond measure, and wondered. They were sore amazed. When all of this occurred, this is real people. These are real events. Jesus walked on the water to the boat. He got in the boat and all the storm around them ceased. And these men are in wonder. Is there any real realization of who Jesus really is? There was some recognition, but I believe that Scripture, uh, speaking of Solomon, where the Queen of the South had come up and seen His glory and His riches and His wisdom, and she says the half's not been told. That's the way it is to every one of us. The Lord works in ways that we've never seen before. And we know in Ephesians He can do exceeding abundantly more than we can ask or think. It's because we don't truly realize the power 
and the authority that He has. And so they're sore amazed. Really, they're scared to death of what they're going to do in the presence of such a man. They willingly and immediately the ship was on the other side. Now in verse 22-23. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save the one whereinto the disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with His disciples into the boat, but that His disciples were gone away, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh to the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither His disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum searching for Jesus. So that sounds like a lot of jargon. But you know what this is doing? This is adding some credence, adding some... Uh, witness to what Jesus had really done. Because only the disciples saw Him walk on the water. But the multitude on the shore that He had just fed, they knew this. The disciples went into a ship to the other side. Jesus wasn't with Him. Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. They knew that there had been no boats left the dock there where they were eating. All of the boats that were there when they went to bed, they were still there that morning. Other than a couple boats that had came. Ain't that amazing detail? You can see it in your head. You wake up in the morning and you're looking for Jesus. Well, where's He at? Where did He go? They go up on the mountain. Jesus is not on the mountain. They look for Him by the sea. We can't find Him anywhere. Well, He must have took a ship. Well, No, all of the ships that were here last night, they're still here. There's been a couple more come in, but there's been no ships leave here. So where did He go? And so they say, well, we know where He sent His disciples. Let's get us some boats and let's go there and see if He's there. But you see how these details that, honest to God, they look totally unimportant. Looks like there's nothing in them But John's given us the the picture of how all of this wrought and how these folks were looking for the Lord. And so verse uh, 24, They took shipping, came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found Him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So that when, that, that can be how, That can be uh, at what time, when, just as we would interpret it. I believe they had all of those questions in their head. Who, what, when, where, and why? How did you get here? When did you come? We didn't see you leave. You didn't take any boats. What happened here? So man in his glory would say, well, I walked on the water to get here. I walked halfway out on the sea to get to where my disciples were and then I rode in the ship with them the rest of the way. Wouldn't you proudly say that? It's just like man says, look at what I've done this week. Look at how much I've done. Look at how much more godly that I am than you are. That's what man likes The Lord's not going to 
He's not going to give them any of that answer. But Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Ye seek me not for the miracles, but because you ate and were filled. So remembering that word miracle in John, you probably all remember what it means through the book, a sign or an indication. So this is what Jesus is saying. You're not seeking me because of the signs. You've not put it together. You've not comprehended by the signs and the indications, the miracles that you've seen, who I am. You know why they ought to have been seeking Him? Because He's the Lamb of God. Because He's the Son of God. Because He's the means of propitiation from their sins. He's the way that man's going to approach God. But they're not seeking Him for that reason. They're seeking Him because they had a good meal and we'd like to get another one for free. You could have a hot dog dinner here every Wednesday night and you could fill the house up. We could double our Wednesday night number. But do you know why they would be coming? For a free meal. Now Jesus isn't looking to build numbers by giving out free meals. And the funny thing is, that free meal that He gave them, He didn't pay for that out of His pocket. That was wrought by the power of God. If He wanted to make money, uh, the truth, if He wanted to be a king, they would have made Him a king. They were looking to do that in this chapter. If He wanted to make money, He could make money. If He wanted to be famous, He could have been famous. If He wanted to be glorified by man, He could have been glorified by man. He sought none of those things. None of those things were important to Him. But He says, you seek Me because of the fishes. So in Ezekiel 33, they come unto thee as the people cometh, They sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words. See, this is what it looks like. As man looks on this, look at this multitude, even as it's written here, seeking for Jesus. They were seeking for Jesus. And man says, look at how noble that all these people are. They're out looking for the Lord. They're putting effort forth to come to the Lord. Must be the right thing. It must be the right thing. But you know what it's all about? It's all about this world's good. Ain't it something? We're always anchored down in this world, in the temporary and not in the world. That's to come. The Lord's going to call that out in just a minute. But Ezekiel says they're going to come. They're going to seek you. They're going to sit before you as my people. That's a simile. They're not going to sit before you being my people, but as. They're going to look like it but they're not going to be. And they're going to hear your words. They're going to hear everything you say. They're going to hear it gladly. Anon with joy, they receive it. But you know what's going to happen here in Ezekiel? They will not do them. That's what the Lord says. They, they come as the people cometh. 
They sit before thee as my people. They hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they shew much love, but their heart goeth after covetousness. They with their mouth, they said, Lord, Master, Rabbi, how did you come here? We regard you highly. We've sought after you. And in their hearts, you know what they wanted? Breakfast. Ain't that something? With the mouth they show much love. They confess it. They profess it. They say it. And they talk a good talk. But in the heart, what they're looking for is for them and for their gain. You reckon that goes on today? I mean, it's been said many times. Really unnecessary to say again. But how many people seek the Lord for natural things? What do, you, what do you reckon the motivation for natural things always are? For self. It's a truth. They are. I realize we live and move and have our being in this world. It's in this world that we carry our weights, that we carry our burdens. We are to cast all of our cares on the Lord. We are to do that. But we're looking at the condition of the heart here. And here they are, they've come seeking. They're not going to do the Word. Their heart is going after their covetousness. What they desire, what they want, and what they love. In Acts chapter 8, when Simon, Simon the sorcerer, now he's made a profession. He was doing many mighty works there in the city. And all of the people regarded him as a man of God. Now, how you want to say that how you want to think of that. They thought him of somebody that God's hand was on. And he was a magician. Maybe a cunning magician. But now here come the apostles preaching the gospel and here's people getting saved. And Simon makes a profession. Looks like he gets saved. And then he sees Peter. Peter lays his hands on some believers and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, seeing that, Simon offers them money. I want that ability. I would like to buy that ability. Now why would he want to buy that ability? Didn't have it. Uh, it's, it's all about Him. You get down to it. It's all about Him. And you know why I, I knew a fellow one time, he, he would buy and sell. He would sell stuff before he bought it and then go buy it after he had it sold. You know what he's always thinking about? I could make $50 right here like that. He called call a man. He saw a trailer. Hey man, I've got a trailer. You want it? It's 25 feet long. Yeah, I want it. And then call the man, yeah, I want to buy your trailer. You know what he's always doing? Wheeling and dealing. Looking for profit. That's what Simon wants. If I can buy this off of them, I can profit a lot more down the road. I'm going to be gained. And I'll still be held in regard among the people. This ain't about man's glory. If glory to me or to you is what's wanted or desired, then our mind and our thinking is in the wrong place. If I want you to think highly of me, 
then I'm not in the will of God in that work. This is not about man glorying in any righteousness of his own. It's not about man filling his belly. This is all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Great care has to be taken because my nature is to make it about me. And I believe that's all of man's nature. But he says in Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Boy, they're always hung up in the temporary, ain't they? Always thinking about things of this world. No mind or thought of any gain in the world that's to come, but it's all about right here. Whose end is destruction? God is their belly. Their belly is their God. You know what they're willing to do? Whatever it takes to satisfy that. There's no other supreme authority. It's just what they want. That's their ruler and that's their God. Whose glory is in their shame. I'm going to tell you the God's truth. If God were to have us stand before Him according to our works... Would there be any man, woman, boy, or girl that could stand before God and not be ashamed six feet under? There's no not one. And man wants to stand in glory and tell man how good he is when the truth is we're shameful. Whose glory is in his shame. That's a pitiful state to be in, isn't it? Minding earthly things. And so Jesus says, and we're almost out of time, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So Jesus now, Jesus is not flattered by five or 10,000 people following Him everywhere He goes. And when He crosses the sea, five or 10,000 people getting ships and going to the other side looking for Him. He's not flattered by that. He doesn't pet that and pamper that to keep the numbers up. You reckon that happens? You better believe that happens. He's not catering to the crowd, but here they come to Him and And they don't ask anything similar to what he's told them. They said, how did you come here? And he said, you've come because of your belly. You've come for fishes and loaves. You've come to satisfy your hunger. Where you need to be is laboring not for that which perisheth. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6... Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So Paul says these men that are destitute, you think about that word now. You ever use that word? 
the truth is we don't know anybody that's destitute. Even the poor, they got all the food they can eat and they got all the beer and drugs that they can take. There's nobody that's truly destitute. But the Word of God says that these men that are supposing gain is godliness, they are destitute of the truth. Their desire and covetousness has robbed them completely of the truth of the Word of God. It's left them hung up in earthly things and they've completely missed the spiritual things. He says, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain because what you brought in, that's what you're taking out. Of a truth, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, everything you've got means nothing to you. It's not going with you. Well, I want to provide for my kids and they may destroy their lives with it. I mean, he says that in Ecclesiastes. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Ain't that the truth? You ever got a raise? A good raise. I've had a few good raises. And you think, boy, this is gonna, we're going to be able to put some money back. And three or four months down the road, you need another raise. You know what's happened? Our expenses increase with that. When goods increase, they that eat them are increased. And the Bible says, and what good is there to the owners thereof? Saving the beholding of them with their eyes. Does it really add value and meaning to your life? Really? Are we all happier you look at the United States of America, you can see that riches do not make people <coughs> happy. But if we're not careful, that's where, we're, that's where we'll be hung up. Labor not for that which perisheth. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? So all of the gain and all of the good and all of the, the labor that's been put into the temporary things at the end of life, it said this is a sore evil. He spent all of his strength and all of his time and all of his effort trying to gain and build up and here he is being planted in the ground and he's got nothing to go with him. He's going back naked just as he came into the world. And so you think about that picture and we're going to hush. A babe is born. A babe has nothing. Right? Right? And here goes one back. All of their life has been spent laboring in this world. And they're going back as a babe with nothing. There's nothing to show for all that labor. Nothing to show for all that work. Nothing to show for all that they've done. That's the way they're going to go back. So Jesus says, labor not for that which perisheth. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Anybody, anything you'd like to say or add?